Please note this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Okay, this uh, is a short story um, called Tove's Secret Letter Writing Campaign by me, Claire Phillips. The first Thursday of every month was Poetry Day. Tove remembered it well. The teacher with the long legs and the flared see-through skirt, the flashy smile and seductive laugh, always the same see-through skirt, always on Thursdays. Today, the teacher intoned feebly, we will write concrete poems in the shape of something new. Their teacher, Leticia, then took to the board and with the technology of the day drew a circle. The others in real-time class were amazed and proud. They had never been instructed to write off the page before. Gather into groups, into small, asphyxiating groups, their teacher said, and write concrete poetry. She explained there had been others to work in this medium in the days before. Who were these others, Johnny Boy asked, his hand lifted to the sky. In one millionth grade, they'll tell you, she sneered sarcastically. I want candy, Tove demanded, candy. Win the contest, the teacher exhorted, her legs now sheathed in boots made from kid leather. Thankfully, there were no windows in the classroom, which made it easier to think and bleed, bleed all over the page. This is just what our beloved modern-day angel, our troubadour of the classroom, did. Tove Evolt bled all over the page. Why? Because she needed to win. She needed that prize money, the dried animal droppings from a distant land. She had to have it all because she had nothing. No dentist, no dryer, no mirror to gaze upon her average-looking reflection. If only her mother, a homeless vagabond, could have afforded even the smallest of compact mirrors. But you see, she couldn't. Chevron, Tove announced her idea feverishly to the group. We will begin by writing down the word Chevron. Exxon, Gustavo added in quick response. He wasn't new to this. He knew what it meant to write. Gladiator, Clarissa offered cheekily. Gladiator, the group cried out, repulsed. This isn't a game, Tove clarified, grabbing the writing device from Gustavo, who sat close enough to Clarissa to be a danger. This is poetry. Eyeing the other groups of feverishly busy, grubby-fingered children, Tove made a split-second decision. The inner circle will be the big guys, and the outer circle we will think of as the little guys, she poked at the pad with the end of the writing device. This will come to symbolize the generosity of the big guys in keeping things tight for everyone else. Tight, a little boy repeated, nearly swooning. Tight, his classroom paramour echoed. Shh, Tove leaned in. We don't want our ideas to get out. Our ideas rule, the little boy remarked, spitting to the floor. Little Lord Fauntleroy, the teacher sidled over. Where are your manners? If you want to spit, she gave the rude fellow's elbow a pinch. Go to the can. Ooh, the group murmured with kiddish delight. The can. Oh, the countless hours that had been spent lingering over that can, eyeing the goodies hawked to the plastic inset below. If only there were a hundred cans, wouldn't life be grand? Tove's group had wit written the winning poem. Hands down, everyone agreed. The group of Tove had interpreted the lesson correctly and with the greatest innovation. Everyone knew the oil companies were struggling and in need of an artful, generous boost. Tove knew because she had overheard someone say so in one of her adult-centered dreams. She always knew when bad things were about to happen, when the stock market was about to crash, when someone was going to get machine-gunned to death at McDonald's, or when subways would be bombed into oblivion. She and whomever she dreamt with, 
she was always putting the mark on someone, would discover the travesty, then talk about it over lunch while everyone else was getting high on ginger beer. The Jamaicans won the soft drink wars, by the by. This contest marked the beginning of a long and fruitful career for Tove Ivot, class writer extraordinaire. As winner of the poetry contest for ten consecutive years, declared Leticia, still as remarkably young as the day Tove first started at Lost and Proud, you are now headed for the big time, the contest at the Capitol, mecca of the ad-driven big shots of the big time. You, Tove, the teacher dripping with gobs of sex appeal, announced, will represent Lost and Proud with the fitful sobriety of a girl with a lot on her mind. Tove stood before the camera in the principal's office and beamed, her image projected across the screens of their virtual school. She's hot, someone explained with the technological savvy to be heard. Rooted to the cold cement floor of the principal's office, Tove considered her well-chosen outfit. Her lavender micro-mini skirt, her black leather shirt with the full and voluminous bow tie. She had grown into a woman. The prize, a gold statuette of longtime art star, handsome Elliot, bespoke her worth. She squeezed the buttocks of the figurine with the bold determination of a zealot. Seize the day, she beamed into the camera, waving the statuette wildly. Seize the day. She knows Latin, the principal stared down her bifocals at the sex bomb teacher who grew smaller every second. So small, in fact, her skin-tight boots began to droop and sag. I didn't teach her those words, her ruby-red lips turned a mealy-shaped pink. It wasn't me, I swear. We learned next to nothing. I taught her fuck off in Spanish, culo, pendeja. The weary-looking principal resumed her place behind the cardboard mock-up desk. Tell me, Leticia, she said, turning her head so she could not be seen on camera. Tell me, why do you look so young? Leticia began to bat her eyes. I have to look young. I have clients. I have boyfriends. I have students. My appearance, her voice trailed off. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. Everyone bartered sex for a little genetic upgrade. Anyone with a little something to sell. Tony Taylor, as lovely as the principal might once have been, she'd missed the cutoff point. At 105, she had nothing left anyone would want. She didn't stand a chance. I can give you some of my genetic upgrade boosts, if you like, Leticia said in the spirit of true compromise. You are a gifted teacher, Tony's face collapsed. You are so important to everyone at the school. Thankfully, we no longer have tenure, or you might have gotten so much worse. Yes, Leticia assented. Worrying about my security and livelihood helps me to be so much better. Thank Lucifer this isn't Europe. France, you mean, or Sweden? Is it still there? Which, Leticia asked, France or Sweden? Does it matter? No, Leticia shook her head. We don't do business with the West anymore. Or do we? She couldn't remember. She'd a lot to do every day, what with collecting and marking the assignments of 3,000 students and monitoring them whenever they weren't in real time. Virtual time took up virtually all of her time. A teacher's work is never done. Sometimes she worked even while sleeping. You know the expression. While the rat's away, the mice will shit all over the place. Tove, principal and teacher shouted, becoming aware of their cowering undernourished charge. Draping their arms about her, they squeezed her tight. The camera darted in for a close-up. Tove beamed from cheek to sunken cheek. At long last, her days of fast food and poverty were finally done. That day, that wonderful day, all eyes were upon her. The capital was just as she had imagined. 
In the rotunda, a group of old, fat, sad-looking men with a sprinkling of women peered up at her through transparent, bulletproof pods, breathing in and out for a very long time. The room was filled with fathers, real fathers, who didn't really give a damn. Tove felt blessed by this attentive inattention and curtsied, stooping in her micro-mini once, twice, thrice to let them eye her from behind. Let the competition begin, a wider-than-average man teetered onto the stage. A gong sounded somewhere and a stocky young man appeared beside her on the theatrically lit stage. Luther Vanderbilt, bleeped an automated voice. Catch me if you can. Hi, Tuxedo, Ohio. So this was her competition, the only other high school graduate with a perfect track record in composition. Yes, Tove reflected, he might have a perfect score on his blab ATs, but could he write? Somehow she guessed he would lose the competition. Dressed in the pants and suspenders of a hobo and made up in the white-faced paint of a mime, he couldn't be very smart. The wide man, who appeared now even wider, dipped his deep-fried fingers into a jar of glubby fat before announcing the big Q. Q, he chortled, eyeing the big board. Define a sales campaign with an outreach of $40 million and an inferior product of design. Name that pitch. Tove winked with sophistication while the disaster from Tuxedo fell dramatically to his knees. Very well, the oversized man added, fat gloving down his wrist. A clue. He turned behind him once again to the big board. This is not a plastic rain cap or a piece of gum. Used to time quizzes, Tove drew the answer on the blackboard of her mind. In split seconds, the double gong sounded and the contents of their minds, his and hers, flashed upon the screen. Just as Tove thought, this mime was no thinker. Plain as day, the mind scan displayed the irrefutable truth. Luther did not use words to articulate thought. Instead, he relied on gesture. Where did he go to school, Tove snorted derisively. With a mind as slowed down as that, to get a perfect score, she deduced brightly, the other students would have to be dead. Tove had a brainwave. Perhaps his ghostly appearance was not the effect of makeup. Perhaps he was, as he appeared, the living dead. No matter, Tove was in the red. The crimson beam honed in on her mind print, highlighting her lively response. Forty million people will buy a radioactive hair comb set when they hear the following slogan. You light up my life. She hit it on the nail. Meanwhile, Luther's meaningless mimicry, a spastic attempt at jumping through hoops, produced next to nothing. Zippo response. Tove Evot, the host announced, reading from the big board, you have proven yourself to be the one. Tiv, a crimson-lipped woman, cried out from the balcony, arms outstretched within her figure-type bulletproof encasing. Tiv, you are the hope of the nation, the smartest, most creative in the land. Tove felt herself shrink. How could she be the smartest? There were over 400 million people on the land. Well, she decided, eyeing the disinterested congressional crowd, they wouldn't stop business for nothing. She had to be something. You will lead the country in its greatest work. You are the Dalai Lama of the word, decreed the faraway woman, a state senator or sports star or something like that. And in no time, Tove became queen of her world. Darling, darling, darling. Yes, my queen, the lackey at her beck and call answered from behind the controls of her palace. Drive me someplace important, as you wish. And he drove her, the queen, round and round the Lincoln Memorial in a sailboat of inimitable design. The boat drew its dynamic form from the latest of inefficient 
energy uses. It dragged its anchor, used its motor at all times, and cranked out the loudest sounds, making certain to disturb all life forms, not a seagull about. On deck, clad in a skimpy black Italian bikini, Tovey designed her latest ad action shout-out. The shout-out was a brand of participation no one could resist. Everyone wanted a shout-out where they lived. Kiss the baby, spank the bride is how it starts, she explained to her lackluster layabout friend and chauffeur. What do you think? Pitching a slim ankle into the air, she gave the fuel-tainted D.C. air a sharp little bicycle kick. Eyes glued firmly to her shapely thighs, her lackey did what he did best. May I make a suggestion, he suggested. Please, yes, she sat down beside him, stir me up. Would it be permissible, I mean, advisable? His haunted eyes glowed painfully. A combined score of 1,200 on the blab ATs, he knew he didn't have much to offer. Ah, uh, he stuttered and flinched. You know the words. She nodded cheerfully. Yes, it's true, she agreed. She was the purveyor of words, the count and countess of words. But she didn't have to lord it over him or anyone else, for that matter, just as long as her words ruled. Go on, she coaxed him good-naturedly, her healthful glow outshining the sun. I can make allowances for your lapses. Go on. Do you love money? he asked, looking shyly about. Well, she responded with a charming crinkle of the nose. It's not my raison d'etre, if that's what you're asking. If you loved money, he declared, you might try another tack. Do you mean the sales? she furrowed her brows. She didn't much like it when the conversation turned to nonsense. Swiftly, her lackey backed off. Yes, he said, eyeing the calm and cloudless sky. We should raise the sales. It's about time to call it a day. I wasn't finished, she reminded him with a rueful look. Please, he offered graciously, resume. And she commenced with what was to become one of her most famous shout-outs of all. Spare me your values, she belted out, and I'll sell you a river. You are amazing, her lackey beamed. You are such a stud. Everything went on like this for a long, long time, with Tovey in charge of the wide, wide world of entertainment, rewriting the songs, the movies, and even the books. When suddenly, from out of nowhere, there came war. No one likes war as much as I do, she declared in yet another high-flying moment at the D.C. Palace headquarters, tromping about the helix-shaped room in five-inch stilettos. Nobody watched the multiple screens. All eyes, including those on their wrist-in-bed computers, were on her. War, s'more, who wants more? Tovey jumped into the air. I do, she cheered herself on. I want more. That definitely won't fly, her mentor chided with a throaty laugh. No, Tovey peered down at his crotch. Is your fly not open? He chuckled some more. You're a funster, Tove Evot. He wagged a playful finger in her direction. Exactly the kind of girl this country needs. I know, Tove sighed. She had all the tricks. The war was going to be endless, they informed her. Her pitch had better be good. We need songs and stories and poems. Can you write a poem? A wolf in priest's clothing leered at her from the edge of the multiple screen. Poetry reaches into the primal man, the priest declared, casting a blind eye to the lechery all about. With the outbreak of war, casual sex had bloomed in the room. Do you like kittens? Tove quizzed the senators, industrialists, and bankers going at it in the room. Oh, yes, a cum-coated woman clutched at the golden key hooked to her neck. I love children anything, cats, dogs, pizza pies. A child of something is always better than nothing. You can't have too many children, Tove's mentor loosened his lips from a junior congress member's balls to say, I have 400 million. He bounced a nickel from his knee. 
Well, Tove beamed cheerfully, twirling about in her red bra and signature black see-through blouse. Have I got the song for you? The room grew still. Dance with me. I want to be your kitty, can't you see? Tove's star continued to rise as her wartime song climbed the charts. Men and women everywhere dashed to their local recruiting stations, ducking into the cardboard shelters where they were immediately uplifted and airlifted into outer space. Soon, however, there were not enough recruits. Somehow, a rumor had gotten started that the anti-gravity inventions, which allowed people to live for months at a time in outer space, were bogus and poorly designed. In order to prove how really safe space travel was, Toei took a promotional tour to the moon. She was the country's greatest asset and in possession of its greatest ass, but this accolade did not stop her from going to where the action was taking place, to where the fighting was at its worst. Halt, she cried out to the warring factions. Halt, halt, halt. Alas, they did not hear her, and she was shot neatly in half. It was a terrible day for America, the United States of beef, a terrible, nearly tragic day. Yet all was not lost, for Tove Ivot had a plan. With only half a body, she found it difficult to think. Luckily, the prosthetics of the day, bouncing and cheap, made for a fast recovery. A thousand sit-ups, some bench presses, and she was back in business. If Tove learned one thing from her interplanetary travels, she learned that war was not funny. She did not want to participate when neither side made use of their ears. Calling an immediate truce, she decreed war unfashionable and out of date. She posted her decree in Hogwarts superstars across the land. In no time, polls proved her post-its to be working. No one wanted to go to war anymore, not after watching gut-wrenching dramas of children fighting parents on dust-filled craters someplace far away and on the other side of night. They were not immune to the horror story. Then one day, after more than 200 million people had purchased a sad song to email the president, something unbelievable happened. Alone, at home, Tove discovered a rat, his beady eyes peering up at her through the glass coffee table. I have been sent here to kill you, he messaged her with his mind. I am an evil son of a bitch who knows you may retaliate. Even so, I am programmed to give you advance warning. Why, Tove squealed, why, why, why? Because, the rat fink intoned, I am a rat, that's what I do. Of course, she laughed nervously, pulling on her prosthetic toes. Language prevails, she cheered, wadding up a fist and pumping it in the air. Time froze and she saw death in his eyes. The rat wielded a knife and she saw him wedging it into her breast, spilling her blood and severing her ties. She, she knew she would have to kill him to save her life. Without a second's hesitation, she karate-chop-chopped the table, disabling the rat, and cut out into the warmish mid-October night. In the woods, Tove did her best to get her bearings, while kilicopters circled above, gunning away into the night. Rat-a-tat-tat, die, Tove, die, rat-a-tat-tat. Tove didn't want to die, nor did she want to suffer any more injuries. Shorn already into parts one and two, she did not think she should have to and all because she had performed her duty, risen from the crumbs of the street to take charge in the big house like a good citizen of beef. She was not ready to die. She was not ready to let it all hang out, as the expression went. She had to tango one last time. Who could she call, she fretted, speed-dialing with a quick flick of the wrist. The voice of Leticia Marple, her former teacher, picked up. Hello? Leticia, Tove murmured fearfully, is that you? Who else would it be? Listen, Tove beseeched, I want to know, how do you stop things from happening? Her former teacher inhaled deeply. 
You must think about time in two ways, she wheezed, the present past and the present now. More, Tove begged, tell me more. She could hear the heart monitor bleeping in the background. She knew there wasn't much time. You must listen for the cow sounds. What? Tove screamed at her wrist. What kind of shit is that? And in a fit of childish rage, hung up on her beloved teacher, hung up and drew a mental X where her teacher once belonged. And as she finished, a new place in her mind opened up, a place she had not known existed, and she found herself traveling, traveling deeply into the X as though she could fall back into herself and begin again someplace new. In this alternate reality, Tove is a manservant and does all the cleaning, bending, washing, watching, and folding. She is very unhappy and her hands are cracked. She is so tired she bumps into things regularly, making her nostalgic for her former sensor-laden, prosthetic hands and feet. She hates it here in X, hates it and she cannot escape. She feels utterly doomed. Tove, the wizened old woman, called out. Tove, where is my coffee, my Alka-Seltzer, my magazine, my gum? I want my chewing gum. Why does this woman want so much, Tove bemoaned her fate. Why is she so lazy? Why am I so alone in X? Why, Tove leaned over her elderly charge, who was flossing her teeth in bed. Why am I here? Why aren't you someplace else, the woman retorted. Why can't I know more? Why don't you know less? The two went around and around like this for some time until finally Tove got an answer. The problem, the woman finally revealed, is your spelling. It's atrocious. It is? Tove hadn't spelt a word wrong a day in her life. It's the worst spelling I've ever seen. I'll change, Tove said in a sudden fit of no confidence. I'll change, I'll change. For a change, the woman winked. I think you already have. What did she mean, Tove wondered, hoisting herself onto her horse to ride into town. What did she mean, Tove fretted. To say I have changed without having known me seemed impossible. Had she been known by this woman at some unknown time? Why did it matter? How could any of this help? Well, it didn't. Tove went from food stall to food stall in the dusty town square looking for answers, finding none. And what did her teacher mean anyhow? The present past, the present now? Were these merely verb forms or something better? And it was then, when she least expected it, that everything fell into place. Moo, a cow sounded from close by. Moo, X marks the spot. Tove's brain clicked into gear. All knowledge springs from informed observation, she remembered from her school years. What parallels could she draw between the present past and the present now? Here she stood in the present past. What was happening? Look around, look around. She came to see all about her were makeshift army recruiting stations, trees with the letter X carved visibly in their trunks. Under these trees, men stood chattering amongst themselves, planning something unremarkable. Tove ducked into the periphery of one such meeting place. They have only 40,000 men, the colonel remarked coolly. We can easily defeat a small regiment like that, the private wagered. Yes, we are the best in the West. This is the South, the young man corrected. Kentucky is the West. The other took umbrage. I think you mean the best. It appeared to Tove that a fight was brewing. She did what she felt was her duty, stepping between the two shit-talking men. Why are you fighting? She addressed the arguing to some girl. The colonel gripped her violently by the shoulders. Why are you asking? Tove gauged the extent of her mistake. Severe. Please, she said in a wilting, feckless voice. I'm feeling faint, and drew a hand to her forehead, falling back into the younger man's arms faking a loss of consciousness, a trick far advanced for her years. 
Soon, after spending an afternoon of sensual delight in the back of this man's horse-drawn buggy, Tovey came to understand the plan. We're going to go after Grant's men and light dynamite under their horses. That's a great plan, she said, sprawling out provocatively beneath him. I have a powerful intuition, he looked back at her strangely. She backtracked. I have a powerful Christian sense. Christian, she enunciated carefully, that you will prevail. With great excitement, he took her once again. Perhaps foolishly, Tovey was unconcerned with getting pregnant. How would it be possible, she deliberated between loud, uncontrollable squeals engendered by this man's long, calculated thrusts, to take the genetic material of a man no longer alive? Besides, even if she did get pregnant, once she returned to her time, she could always take a pill. Then, just like that, she snapped her fingers, it would be over and done. And a simple snap of the fingers was all it took to transport Tovey from beneath the hard, smooth belly of a fractious young man back to her time and the encroaching high desert that spread out in all directions from the capital. Like Jesus, she trekked under the hot glare of the sun for a very long time. The first friendly face to light upon her path was her lackey. My trusty manservant, she squealed. You deserve a promotion. His moist eyes gleamed with appreciation. I do? Yes, she flung her arms about his neck. Some recognition, too. Recognition? Indeed, this was turning out to be a good day, just like his horoscope predicted. "'What's your name?' she asked, her interest finally sparked. "'Manfred,' he tickled her ear with a whisper. "'Okay, Manfred,' she ordered. "'Let's make tracks.' And so they did, to a run-down McDonald's at the edge of town. "'You see,' she explained with infinite wisdom, "'I figured it all out, giving Manfred the skinny on her journeys. "'I now know what the present past and the present now have in common,' she nodded with conviction, "'slavery and the Civil War.' "'Go figure,' Manfred responded with an empty look. "'Well,' she fumed, "'did she have to be the one always to spell things out? "'They're fighting on the moon "'because they don't want to destroy the remaining habitable land here on Earth, right?' "'Right,' Manfred said, making a show of following along. "'And they don't want it to stop. "'So they are trying to kill me "'because my campaign has split the populace into two warring factions. "'The many who do not want to go to war "'and the greedy few who do.' "'He nodded vaguely, eyes glazing over.' Her manservant wasn't interested in politics. He just happened to grow up in the D.C. area. "'What I want to know,' he asked with palpable feeling, "'is what this has to do with us.' He reached across the scuffed-up yellow plastic table for her hand. "'Manfred,' she exclaimed hotly between bites of McFries and McGoogles, "'nothing can happen between us until we end this war.' Manfred shifted behind him for the brightly lit marquee. He would have to eat something if, he was, if she was going to make him wait like this.' Tell me, he intoned, weak with desire, how are we going to do this? She spelled it out in squirts of ketchup. Children, Manfred queried with a scratch of his head. Children, Tove corrected him with a swift kick of his leg. Children. And our secret weapon, she squirted out some more ketchup, chewing gum. Manfred's eyes went glassy. He didn't understand, but he didn't want to get kicked again. Great, he soldiered on. When can it be done? The first thing they had to do was free America's children from their virtual school chains. A little hacking on a Thursday morning, and at approximately 10.48 a.m., 50 million or so lockdown children were released from electronic bondage and put on indefinite hold. From each ankle in bed monitor, a voice of 10,000 simulated parts screeched, Attention, children, attention, you are wanted in the streets. The people were unaware of what was happening in the streets. 
Nothing happened in the streets anymore. The war was happening on the moon and in their heads. Under defunct streetlights, peace scouts, slyly camouflaged, handed out trial-sized packs of gum with instructions on the side that read, Chew and Spit. It was the job of all children, the peace scouts declared, to spit their ABC gum, already been chewed, at the first adult they came across. Nurses and peace scouts excluded. What's more, they weren't just to spit the gum at their targets, but inject it into their moist orifices by any means necessary. If this meant throwing themselves at the unsuspecting adult, making out with them in order to hawk gum deep within their saliva pits, so be it. Why, a chumpy five-year-old griped, why should I? Yeah, a bunch of asswipes chimed in. What's in it for me? Not even five minutes old and the revolution was in trouble. Tuning in to the trouble over the simultaneous big channel, Manfred relayed the situation to Tovey in a flash. Bribe. Kids need bribe. Hmm, Tovey took a moment to think. They shouldn't know what's in it for them. Not yet. Tell them it's a history lesson. Tell them they are writing history. Manfred intercepted the message worriedly. While writing might mean the world to Tovey, it didn't mean much to anyone else. She wouldn't mind if he tweaked the language. Time was of the essence. Children, the voice of thousands shrieked from their ankles. We are fighting a terrifying plague. A bacteria-disabling gum activated by your personal DNA is our only chance for survival. We are counting on you to chew your gum with dedication and pride. You and your saliva will be remembered for an eternity, the voice of thousands trailed off. The streets became silent and eerily still. Millions of children peered down at their ankles. We will spit our gum into the mouths of unsuspecting grown-ups, chanted America's children. We will spit our gum. We will. We will. Ah, unity and order, Tovey declared, swiveling gleefully within her tan velour captain's chair. The gum stopper campaign, as it came to be known, was an all-out automatic success. Children kissed adults with power and punch, catapulting chewed gum and sometimes tinfoil wrappers into their unsuspecting chomps. Without the power of the maw, the inflection of the common order no longer prevailed. No one could tell anyone what to do anymore, and the war between the half-moors and the half-more-moors died firmly out, leaving Tovey free, free to do whatever she pleased. What she did was take Manfred back with her to the capital, where she ruled the world with the first-ever organetic fist— of course, sometimes Manfred found it necessary to play hard to get. These games never lasted for long. I love you, she said, coaxing Manfred out from his clever little hiding spot. I do you, he replied. Please, she panted, clasp my ankles, and the fun had only just begun. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. <laughs>